everyone, and welcome to Risky Business number 257. I'm Patrick Gray. On this week's show, we're taking a look at Windows 8 with Alex Ionescu. Alex works for CrowdStrike, and he is a genuine expert in Windows internals, and he says exploit writing and persistence, uh, malware persistence, when it comes to owning Windows boxes, is about to get a whole lot harder. That's coming up after the news. This week's show is brought to you by Insomnia Security. Insomnia is a New Zealand-based consultancy founded by Brett Moore. Uh, But these days, Insomnia is much bigger than Brett. Uh, They have six full-time staffers, and they're all very clever people. Uh, Adam Vilo, our regular news guest, works there, as does this week's sponsor guest, Mark Piper. And we are chatting to Mark about what typical APT attackers get up to. Uh, What does a run-of-the-mill APT MO actually look like? That's coming up later. But before all of that, it's time for a check of the week's news headlines with our good buddy, Adam Boileau. And Adam, we've got a really interesting mix of news items this week, but we're going to start off with uh, what's becoming a bit of a familiar story, which is another major corporation owned by sophisticated threat actors. Uh, This time it was Adobe's turn. Uh, Some dudes or dudettes managed to get into their corporate network and uh, take over a build server so they could get some of their code cryptographically signed with Adobe's uh, code signing certs. Uh, Bad goings on at Adobe. Yeah, this is a, is a pretty bad look. It's uh, as the story goes, they had a um, a build server get compromised, as you said, and that build server was capable of submitting code uh, to their code signing system, uh, which would then cryptographically sign with Adobe's private key uh, the binary and, and return it back to the build server. And uh, apparently, this uh, was actually used to sign some malicious binaries. Uh, one of them was a, a PW dump, uh, you know, like a password hash dumper for Windows. Uh, another was some kind of Microsoft ISAPI. Uh, filter for for IIS, the like uh, ISAPI filter, which presumably is backdoor to use for command and control or something. And both of these binaries, both of these binaries were found uh, signed in the wild, mm. uh, which is a pretty bad thing. Now, um, Adobe, of course, have said that the you know this was not a particularly widespread thing, and only these two binaries were signed, and that they're revoking all the other things that have been signed, or they're revoking the keys used to sign things uh, from I think uh, July uh, this year onwards. And they're trying to make it sound, you know, like uh, they've got it under control. But realistically, you know, having bad guys uh, in a position to, to code sign things is a pretty bad look. Yeah, no, it really is. But, uh, you know, in all previous cases where something like this has happened, it's usually been some sort of Taiwanese hardware manufacturer and the keys or certs have been sort of grabbed off a hard disk. In this case, Adobe were actually using a HSM, so the attackers needed to have their stuff signed from within the Adobe network, which is that progress? I guess that's progress. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, we saw we saw Red Hat get their uh, package signing box compromised, and we've seen the Debian mm. project uh, suffer similar sorts of things. But obviously, there is a bit of a gap between you know, an open source organization like Debian uh, and Adobe, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which you know has software on, on pretty much every box in the world. Which yeah, it's it's not good. I did have a bit of a interesting chat to someone internally at Adobe uh, who tells me that they're signing something like a thousand files a day. So introducing human oversight, uh, I think, is something they're considering now. Uh, but previously, it was just considered too labor intensive to actually have you know a, a set of human eyeballs actually watching everything coming in from these build servers. I mean, you think about all of the different product lines they've got, all of the different platforms. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's it's not a trivial problem. Yeah, it's what uh, our good friend Peter Goodman would call a wicked problem, I think. <laughs> um, you know, having, yeah, as you say, having that many things go through it, uh, obviously it takes out some of the uh, possibility for human oversight uh, and, you know, keeping tabs on all the bits of uh, code that are being compiled and, and signed as, you know, throughout that process has got to be difficult because it's not just code signing, right? You could in, uh, not just signing individual binaries. You could also, in that position, presumably introduce malicious code uh, into legitimate products that are going to be signed, all that sort of thing. There's a whole range of attacks and defending adequately against those is very, very difficult. Um, but, you know, that doesn't change the fact that you know, people are in their network signing their malware. Yeah, it's like... You know, we don't, we don't care that it's hard. We want Adobe to do it damn well right. And if it costs them a billion dollars, they should spend a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. A <laughs> billion dollars coming at you for code signing. Don't think that's going to happen. But I just love that uh, the, these attackers signed a, uh, signed a tool called PW Dump. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, thought, you would have thought if there was any human oversight at all that one's kind of going to jump out at you right as a file name 
Well, clearly they wouldn't do that uh, unless they were very much aware that there wasn't a human oversight, which implies a you know a lengthy phase of recon and you know all the kind of uh, uh, intelligence you gather during the lower movement phase that you know indicates these attackers are well entrenched. And I mean, it, it would not be unrealistic to suggest that this is the same people who've been in there ever since Aurora time. Um, you know, you don't get people who are going to code sign their own malicious code out of your network in a hurry. Mm. And I think it would be. Uh, you know, I find it a little bit uh, incredible to believe that uh, this was all they did and they just broke in specifically and did this and didn't, uh, you know, have uh, long-term persistent access. You know, if you're, there, if you're an advanced persistent threat, then you're either advanced and persistent or you're not, right? I mean, mm. saying that um, it seemed disingenuous, I think, some of the, the press we've seen coming out of Adobe about it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think uh, from what I understand, quote, forensics are ongoing. We should also disclose <laughs> that Adobe is one of the sponsors of the Risky Business podcast. Uh, so take everything that we say with a grain of salt because we're hideously influenced by such commercial pressures. <laughs> Indeed we are. Yeah, all the fat cash and yummy, yummy, tasty treats they send us. Yes, that's right. Oh, now, uh, just uh, interesting to note, Adobe is revoking that code signing certificate, but it shouldn't cause any uh, major dramas because uh, it won't affect software that has already been installed. So um, they'll just start, you know, shipping stuff with uh, uh, that have been signed by new certs. Now, um, speaking of uh, major ownage, the White House... Uh, has confirmed a bit of a spearfishing intrusion into its systems, but it says uh, no secret data was obtained, which is kind of a funny way of throwing the press off the scent, isn't it? Because I would have thought White House email is of some intelligence value, even if it's not technically classified. Yeah, apparently they um, somebody, uh, they're claiming it was the, the comment gang, uh, I think, fished the White House military office, which apparently is a, you know some kind of office that provides support functions for military people in the White House, uh, including the dudes who uh, carry around the codes for launching nuclear weapons. Um, so, you know, maybe that's not so secret. I don't know. Maybe the launch codes are all 0000, zero, 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 zero after all. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really doubting that they leave the launch codes on a hard disk somewhere. Well, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, you yeah, know, sure. that said, that's not exactly the office you want being sort of owned sideways by God knows who, right? No, exactly. It really isn't. Um, but on the other hand, right, I mean, everyone gets owned by spearfishing all the time. And, mm. you know, it would be unrealistic to imagine that the White House didn't. But, uh, you know, it makes you think that this is more an exercise of saying, you know, hey, look, everybody, they owned the White House. You know, yeah, yeah, with yeah. With big letters and underlined, you know, clearly we should spend some cyber money. Yes, indeed. Now, speaking of ownage, you know who else got owned? These guys, Telvent. <laughs> yeah, so this company, Telvent, um, uh, make uh, scatter equipment, control systems equipment in the um, for the energy market. Uh, and apparently, yeah, they got owned pretty good by the sound of things. Yeah, and um, it looks like the attackers were actually after some IP. Uh, they, you know, did their typical, uh, you know, installed some custom malware on, on their network and stole a bunch of project files related to uh, a product called uh, Oasis uh, SCADA, which is like, uh, uh, it's, it's a product made for energy firms, which helps them sort of link up old SCADA stuff to new SCADA, uh, SCADA stuff and does smart grid and, you know, all of that stuff that um, I suppose... You know, it could be of military consequence if people were to uh, have very detailed information on vulnerabilities in those sort of products. Yeah, and it's also interesting. This is one of the first uh, kind of announcements of uh, people in the energy sector actually getting compromised and you know IP theft going on because we've seen the energy sector being being targeted quite heavily over the last eighteen months or so, and there hasn't been mm. that much you know talk about it in the public sector. Um, Sorry, in, in public media, uh, you know, with examples like this of people actually saying they get owned. So this maybe this is the beginning of the, you know, all these people actually realizing and starting their own incident response and talk about it. Oh, now uh, some big news. Uh, what's certainly been all over the television here in Australia uh, and the newspapers is, you know, that scam where people ring up and say, hi, I'm calling from Microsoft. You have a virus, you know, click through to these uh, error messages and then they get your credit card number and they, they install a Trojan on your machine through some sort of, you know, either they do it by RDP or they just have you download and install it. A whole bunch of people who are responsible for that scam, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's multiple crews doing it, but a big crew have just been busted in a joint uh, operation between, I think, Australia, US and was it Canada as well? Yeah, by the sound of it, yes. They um, they appear to have picked up some of the people who are running that, you know, a bunch of people in India and a few uh, elsewhere in the UK and the US. Of course, this got a bunch of media coverage over here in New Zealand as well, you know, people getting getting scammed out of their 80 bucks or $200 or whatever. Um, but, you know, it's hard to imagine you could make such a, you know, such a dumb scam uh, on such a large scale and not end up getting caught. Like, it, you know, there's too many things to tie you back to the call centers and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I guess it was a matter of time. Now, um, in some news close to home here in Australia, 
Uh, regular listeners would have remembered the uh, story about first state superannuation last year where our buddy Pat Webster found a direct, uh, direct object reference bug in his pension funds website and it all got a little bit out of hand when they called the police and their lawyers and stuff and tried to you know have him zipped over to to gitmo uh <laughs> the australia's post office uh australia post has experienced a similar sort of flaw a customer found a bug in its click and send sort of invoicing system that would enable uh you know anyone to just increment a counter and um increment a url uh value and and pull back customer data uh and he tried notifying australia post and they just they gave him short shrift yeah, yeah, just it's it's a story we've seen repeated so many times, isn't it? I mean, organizations that don't have any, you know, real expertise in uh, in information security, you know, a flubbing the development of these applications, and then b flubbing handling uh, of the inevitable security vulnerability reports that they get. Um, and you know, unfortunately, there's no one really to blame but Australia Post. You know, they, you, you have to test these things. You can't have oh, us top ten, number four, or whatever you know, direct object references uh, in public facing stuff, and not expect it to go horribly wrong anymore. Mm. Well, I love they they actually told this guy, hey, um, you know, our customers aren't smart enough to find this sort of thing, you know, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. So eventually he went, he actually went to news.com.au, uh, Claire Connolly got the scoop and it was um, a good story. But at least uh, Australian organisations have learned that responding with police action probably isn't the most sensible thing to do. Yeah, Maybe the yeah. most sensible thing to do is just fix the bug. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm really guessing that this was an issue that uh, that person couldn't find a correct point of contact to report this. He wasn't a pen tester or anything like that. He's just you know man off the street sort of thing. So you know I'm sure there are competent people at Aussie Post, but uh, they certainly weren't alerted to this. Oh, now turning back to scammers for a moment, and the Federal Trade Commission in the United States has uh, taken on these scareware marketers. You know these people who offer this fake AV. Uh, and they've imposed a $163 million judgment on those behind some of this stuff. That's, uh, that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of bananas. Yeah, it is indeed. Eh? They, um, this is the people who are pushing, uh, like, XP antivirus and win antivirus um Via a bunch of different mechanisms, and they pulled a few people up in court about it. And there's been some kind of, you know, some cut plea bargains and things. But yeah, the net result is, yeah, 163 million dollars plus they have to pay some um, some other fines and things. Uh, of course, how much of that actually ends up in the hands of the people who bought the uh, the fake antivirus remains to be seen. But yeah, it's mm. good that you know they are seeing some success prosecuting these jerks. That's a lot of money, and uh, I love that the company that uh, perpetrated the scam was actually called Innovative Marketing Incorporated, which is, uh, <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> uh, now some bread and butter InfoSec news now, and the HSTS, uh, uh, proposed HSTS standard, this is like a forced SSL standard, uh, looks like it's um, getting a bit of a tick from the IETF and might actually get up as a sort of strict transport security protocol. Uh, uh, and, and, and actually be a thing that we use. What do we think of this? Oh, personally, I like HSTS. I think it's, um, you know, we've seen it work already fairly well for Google with Chrome, you know, a way that you can say on first visit to a web server, you know, uh, the web server can tell the browser, for the rest of time, only ever connect to this site with SSL, no matter what anyone says. Mm. Uh, and that's uh, that's a good thing. It's a you know effective, straightforward to implement, and basically works. Um, you know, having it um, work across all of the browsers uh, would be helpful. At the moment, I think uh, what IE and Safari are pretty much the only things that don't support it. Um, so yeah, having this move along, I think, is a good thing. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, you would think something like that would be straightforward to um, to get ratified, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, now, speaking of you know further advancements in standards, um, there's been a winner selected of in the uh, SHA three competition. Yeah, so it looks like they've finally picked uh, Kekak, K-E-C-C-A-K, uh, as the uh, the SHA-3 digest. Uh, it doesn't, uh, as I understand it, it's not particularly related to uh, any of the earlier SHA algorithms, um, but I guess, you know, NIST being NIST, presumably they have done their homework. Oh, now here's an interesting idea that I'm not sure how I feel about. I'm not sure how I feel about this one, to be honest, but uh, a bunch of uh, uh, people at uh, universities in, in uh, Europe, uh, it looks like the Netherlands and Germany and Belgium, uh, and a Dutch security firm, uh, they're working on this project called Puffin. And what they're, what they're looking to do is use the, and I'm quoting, physically unclonable functions found in most standard PC components to actually provide some level of authentication of a user. Well, I mean, their essential idea here is to try and find properties of uh, of your computer which are not easily clonable, uh, and by that they really mean manufacturing defects more than serial numbers. I think. I mean, we've we've seen um, Unix serial numbers included in CPUs and stuff, and mechanisms to query those. But realistically, what they need is a, something that isn't 
you know, a regular function, something that you could, as you say, intercept and, and modify. And so they are proposing to try and, uh, you know, fingerprint manufacturing defects in your hardware. In this case, they're using a GPU, presumably because the GPU is so, you know, horrendously complicated these days that the, you know, the chances that there are manufacturing, you know, defects or at least, uh, you know, irregularities that are measurable, um, uh, and yeah, they're trying to you know, fingerprint that somewhere remotely and then build some sort of system where you can remotely assert that, you know, you are providing legitimate information about your, yeah, it's a bit kind of, uh, I mean, I would call it like, a, you know, academic wankery a little bit personally, but. Um, <laughs> but fundamentally, it's not a crap idea, I think is what you're saying. Well, I mean, the idea of tying a computer, you know, a specifically identifiable system to a login or an account or something uh, as a way of reducing, uh, you know, account theft or reducing the use of, of credential theft. You know, it, it's a nice idea. I just don't really see it working very well, well in the real world. Google does it. I mean, I, you know, I use Google accounts and then it's, uh, you know, there's always a little checkbox option which says trust this computer. And I always leave that unchecked. I'm like, trust no one. Trust no one. Ever. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how the mechanics of that are working. So do not trust this computer. This computer might be owned. Yeah, but I mean, some of the banks already do this kind of thing successfully by, you know, just looking at something as simple as user agent string, mm-hmm. right? Because, I mean, you don't necessarily have to defeat, uh, you know, well-equipped malicious adversaries. And if you can knock off the bottom, you know, 90% of um, of credential thefts, then that's yeah. still a useful thing. And you don't have to go spending, you know, a couple of million dollars and doing esoteric things with people's graphics cards, uh, which probably will make things worse. But no, it's just, you know, building a system where you would be able to query this kind of low-level hardware information it's going to require native code running on the end system, and the net result of that will be worse mm. than the extra benefit it provides you for authentication, in my opinion. Now, here's another bit of interesting news about authentication. Uh, Mozilla's trying to float a uh, Persona web authentication system, which it's all very Web 2.7, and I don't really get it. What's, what's, what's this all about, Adam? Um, well, Persona is Mozilla's attempt to do kind of web-based single sign-on uh, for multiple websites, you know, in the same sort of vein as OpenID um, and uh, OAuth and SAML and those sorts of federated authentication tech. Although there is a bit of a sort of a Mozilla twist to it. And, uh, and I think, you know, if any of these um, federated auth standards are going to work well, I think Persona is probably going to be it. They've made a few fairly smart architectural choices. Um, and from, you know, I've talked to a couple of the Mozilla guys about it Um and, uh, you know, I think they are on the right track. And, you know, if, if you've ever tried to implement, you know, SAML-based um, single sign-on, it's just a complete nightmare. And the Mozilla guys have put a lot of effort into making this work, you know, relatively easily and to implement the sort of privacy goals and, and things that the Mozilla guys are interested in. Uh, so, yeah, I would much rather this wins than log in with Facebook because, you know, I can't do that, right? Because I don't have a Facebook account, so I can't log into <laughs> shit anymore. Um, so I'm quite pleased. I think, the you know, this project is one of the better things that Mozilla have been doing lately. Well, there you go. What sounds almost like a ringing endorsement of uh, of Mozilla's efforts there. <laughs> well, it's certainly better than the alternatives, I think. Now, look, uh, some time ago, I'm just going to put a link to this in the show notes, but some time ago we discussed the case where um, there was a, a water pump hack in the United States. A SCADA system got apparently broken into. The Homeland Security Department got alerted. Turned out it was a contractor, an American contractor who happened to be on holiday in Russia, you know, using valid credentials and all of that. Uh, there's a very interesting story that Wired has carried, uh, uh, which really looks at how the Department of Homeland Security exploited this misperception of this as being a state-sponsored attack uh, for their own political benefits. Yeah, yeah. apparently they're claiming now that the... Um uh, the fact that this report was false was actually a success uh, because it, quote, generated interest, unquote, which, yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, no, it looks, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a real uh, facepalm moment when you read that one. Uh, yeah. Very quickly, Cisco has patched a bunch of bugs in iOS and UCM. Yeah, so there's uh, apparently some bugs with BGP, which is really not what you're looking for in a Cisco router uh, that runs the entire internet. Uh, and there's also some denial of service bugs in uh, UCM, which is kind of like their VoIP uh, server thingy. But yeah, net result, you can terminate calls on a um, on a UCM. It'll crash the whole damn thing. Um, and that obviously is a bad thing. Now, uh, look, a listener sent this story in uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, it's probably one of the lousiest I've seen in a long time. The city of Tulsa in uh, over there in the United States, they, they, they got a little bit confused after the pen test. <laughs> So apparently, uh, apparently these complete muppets. They had at some point commissioned some pen testing company to do uh, unannounced red team testing on them, presumably to test, you know, that they uh, would uh, detect and respond appropriately. Anyway, they um, got you know hacked by this company. 
uh, and then went full on incident response. Uh, didn't realize that it was an authorized intrusion, uh, <laughs> shut down their website and all their web premises and rolled like full IR, including sending physical letters out to everybody who'd ever filed a complaint with the council and anyone who'd, um, you know, interact with them warning them that their personal information may have been stolen and telling them to keep uh, an eye on their uh, credit ratings and things. They sent 90,000 of these out. Yes, uh, at a cost of $20,000. I mean, the whole thing is just <laughs> absolutely hilarious um, uh, we, yeah yeah i mean you can't you can't really say much more about it can you it's just uh <laughs> but, you well, know we got I... we got two more pieces we got two more pieces we got to cover and they're both almost <laughs> as funny uh this next one it was also sent in by a uh, by a listener um who, who chose who chooses to remain anonymous cause, but i mean god this is funny there's an aix bug which is just i mean it's just adam tell explain to us this bug uh, so it was a fairly hilarious bug in uh, in AIX uh, 6.1, 7.1 and earlier, um, where you can use the uh, F user binary uh, to send signals to arbitrary processes as a non-privileged user, <laughs> which, mm. you know, sending sig kill to, to init, um, yeah, might be kind of a problem <laughs> when you're logged in as, you know, not root. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, IBM, uh, of course, claim that they have fixed this uh, during their, uh, you know, conscientious effort to secure AIX and make sure that it is uh, robust and not vulnerable to stupid think- flaws from the year 1973. Yeah, but no, I think this was actually introduced. From what I understand, this was actually introduced a few years ago, this bug. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, AIX is a, you know, terrible Mad Max wasteland filled with, you know, burning oil drums and not much else. Yeah, no, it's pretty bad. But it's like, you know, this this listener who wrote in just said, yeah, just kill, you know, bang, connection closed by remote host. He's like, you're f***ing kidding me. You know, you could just DOS the whole box, basically. Yeah, well, it's, you know, IOX is indeed totes enterprise. Yes, totally, totally legit. Uh, now, you guys have had a very funny uh, little thing happen in New Zealand. Uh, in New Zealand, you, you guys don't really use eBay. There's a um, there's a website you use instead that's called TradeMe. Now, like eBay in many countries, TradeMe has become somewhat of a monopoly, uh, which didn't sit too well with a wealthy New Zealand gentleman. Yeah, so uh, this uh, trade me competitor started up uh, called Weedle. Uh, it was funded by the guy who runs like a trucking company over here, uh, and he paid a whole bunch of money out uh, to some um, outsourced developers who built him a trade me competitor website. Uh, they went live with much uh, media fanfare, as as you do, you know, spend a whole bunch on marketing that sort of thing. Unfortunately for them, uh, they appear to have not heard of the concept of a security review, uh, and as a result, the site was riddled with awful, hilarious bugs, uh, which were of course immediately and. Uh, uh, with much glee exploited by many nasty people on Twitter. These include such things as being able to change the price of an auction after it had been listed, do $1 and then complete the auction. Um, you could uh, get people's clear text passwords out. Uh, those, you know, the full set of, you know, OS top 10 um, silly buggeries going on. And of course, the site stayed up for about half a day um, and then was either taken off the internet or blown off, not quite sure, uh, yeah. and never to return. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll see. It might actually come back, but I'm guessing there might be, you know, there might be a security audit going on right now. <laughs> One would hope so. If I had to uh, guess, yeah, I guess there's a few, you know, fish and barrels being uh, being murdered right there, right now. Oh, now, not that I would ever want to encourage this sort of behaviour, Adam, but we got some news just at hand uh, about an IT security publication that may have been trolled a little bit. Oh, really? Just a little bit? Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, Hack9 or Hacking with a 9, depending on how you uh, choose to pronounce it, is some kind of e-zine out of, uh, out of Poland, I believe. Uh, and they uh, were publishing an issue of their well-respected magazine uh, about Nmap. Uh, and uh, somebody submitted a, uh, a wonderful 60-page article to run as the, as the feature of their magazine uh, about a new feature in Nmap, the uh, DARPA Inference Checking Kludge Scanning System, or DICS. <laughs> um, now, this, of course, was uh, generated by one of these kind of you know, academic gobbledygook-speak uh, uh, paper generators with some hilarious diagrams, uh, and then it would you know kind of carried on with some amusement when uh, um, Fiora, the guy who wrote Nmap, uh, uh, got permission from Hack9 uh, to post this article uh, on his on Nmap.org as a fine example of uh, of their journalism and of course to support the burgeoning Nmap Dick community. <laughs> Which went well uh, until they realized that they had been trolled hard uh, by a bunch of people claiming to be, you know, Mark Dowd and um, you know, a few other <laughs> luminaries. Yeah. Uh, anyway, 
So, yes, they are now uh, shaking the legal stick at Porfiorda and telling him to take uh, take his dicks down or their dicks down <laughs> from his website. But those dicks are staying online. They are. Those dicks are going to stay right up there online. No matter um, how many lawyers they, they rustle up. Great troll. Whoever did that, uh, big ups. Hilarious. Yeah, that Most is pretty fun. world-class trolling. Well, mate, on that note, uh, that actually brings us to the end of this week's news segment. Thank you, as always, for joining us, and we'll chat to you again next week. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. It's always, always good fun to end on, on a note of dicks. Insomnia Securities, Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's news headlines. Up next, it is time for this week's feature interview with Alex Ionescu. Alex specialises in low-level system software for administrators and developers, uh, as well as reverse engineering and security trainings for government intelligence and defence agencies. He's also taught Windows internals courses at Microsoft. Now, Alex worked at Apple on the iOS kernel, uh, the bootloader, firmware and uh, drivers on the original core platform team behind the iPhone, iPad and Apple TV. And these days, he's chief architect at CrowdStrike, a security startup, which is focused on nation-state adversaries and other highly sophisticated threats. In other words, this guy knows what he's on about. And in a couple of weeks, uh, he'll be flying out to Australia to present at the Ruxcon Breakpoint Security Conference in Melbourne. His topic of choice is Windows 8 security and the ARM kernel. With Windows 8 due to be launched later this month, I thought it would be a good time to look at the security enhancements uh, that Microsoft has baked into the OS. And boy, are there a few. So I got Alex on the line and started off by asking him to tell us roughly what he'll be talking about at Breakpoint. And apologies for the rough audio quality because uh, he just didn't have a headset handy. Here he is. Over the years, uh, we've seen a lot of attacks against uh, against Windows, and we've seen both Windows and software vendors improve security regarding kinds of attacks that are, that are happening through things like ASLR, you know, stack cookies, and um, no exit support, and a lot of technology that are vanilla in, in many modern operating systems. And what's happened is that attackers have kind of been moving up the stack, as we say, so moving from user mode to kernel mode, um, both because traditionally that's been an area where, you know, less code used to run in there, less things used to be vulnerable in there, um, and so the, there wasn't so much of a target of opportunity, and also the difficulty is, was much, and still is much higher, and so because it's so easy to attack and exploit things in, in, in user mode and at the application level, you know, we didn't see a lot of attacks in that area, and what's been happening over the last, you know, say four or five years, is that as user mode has been getting uh, tighter and tighter to to attack, and as you know, in the Windows case, more and more services have been moved to the kernel. Um, you know, it's become quite a target of opportunity, and also the rewards are, are quite great, right? Because if you think about things like sandboxing technologies or, or user account control or the things that make you, you know, make it hard in user mode to do anything, even after you've exploited an app. If you exploit Chrome these days or Adobe PDF, you've got to break out past your sandbox. If you exploit a service in the kernel, there is no sandbox. You, you pretty much own the machine at that point, so you don't have to worry about all those other traditional post-exploitation steps. Um, so with Windows 7, I think Microsoft saw that this was happening, and they started you know, making some changes to make the kernel um, harder to attack. Um, and with Windows 8, they've definitely raised the bar and they've added, um, you know, like you said, a laundry list of, of mitigations and, and protections and additional security around some things, which make it, you know, honestly, a lot harder um, to mm. get into the kernel. Yeah, no, it is interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost uh, a bit of a win that the attackers are being forced to find new ways to skin these, um, these age-old cats, um, you know, by attacking the kernel. But then you look at some of the features that Microsoft is introducing in Windows 8, and you think, gee, that is going to close off a lot of pathways to exploitation. Yeah, that's that's exactly what's going to happen. And, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see how attackers basically deal with, with the new landscape and then where if they try to go and break past these security or if they try to find other weaknesses that, you know, haven't yet been closed. Now, why don't you walk us through some of the specific features that uh, Microsoft is introducing into Windows 8? Um, I believe, you know, one of the things they're doing is this whole sort of sandboxing uh, architecture uh, that, that, that they're introducing, which is going to be pretty fundamental to the OS. Um, so that one actually is, is something mostly uh, down to protect user mode. Yeah. Um, and that's called um, app containers. 
Um, internally, it was called uh, Lobox at Microsoft. So if you if you spell link in the kernel and the data structure, you'll you'll often see the words Lobox being used, um, and that that refers to app, to app containers. Um, and the idea behind that is is basically to bring a, more of an iOS and partially Android. I'm more friendly with iOS, their best model to the way applications run. So you know, in Windows, once once you run applications as Know, Bob the user, um, those applications pretty much are in a level playing ground. They have access to all the things that Bob normally has access to. Um, and there was some work with integrity levels in Vista to make some of those apps more powerful than others for browsers and things like that. Um, but you know, within two browsers or within two applications of the same integrity level, they could do you know anything to the system that the user could do. So app containers try to say, let's have some security now at the application level. So every application runs kind of in its own virtual account with its own files, its own registry settings, its own named objects, and it's isolated from all the other objects and from all the other files and registry keys that other applications might have if it's using the new, you know, the new Windows, uh, Windows 8 Modern or Metro style application model. Yeah, now you can almost uh, enable like an iOS-style code signing uh, regime on your Windows box uh, with some of their policy stuff as well. I mean, again, this is userland stuff. We'll get to the kernel stuff in a minute, but uh, it looks pretty looks pretty cool. I mean, especially if you're managing it from an enterprise point of view, you're going to get really specific control over what can and can't execute on that machine. Yes, exactly. And if you have some of the newer hardware that's coming out with uh, things like Intel's Secure Boot, and sign bias, you can even make those policy settings basically at a firmware level. So Windows will just say, what did you configure in your BIOS? Um, and so if someone does have physical access to the machine or tries you know, some sort of low level attack to, to change that setting, it's not just something in the registry, it's actually you know, something encrypted and signed all the way down to the, the, the EFI itself. Mm. Um, and it's likely, you know, I don't know this for sure, but it makes sense that Windows RT so that the, the, the ARM platform We'll probably have these settings fused to always check for signatures exactly like iOS does it. Yeah, now you've got also the uh, ELAM, which uh, stands for Early Launch Anti-Malware, which, uh, which is a driver technology designed to get security drivers up and running uh, very, very quickly uh, from, from the moment you power on. Yep. Um, yeah, one of the, one of the big problems, um, again, with this one in the current security is that a lot of, a lot of the bad Guys will often load before the good guys do. So they'll load their drivers um, before the antivirus driver comes up. And by this time, the system is already rootkitted. It's already owned. Um, and so the EV driver is basically no longer the same level playing field. So what Elam does, is that one of the things it does, it says, well, let's have a special category of drivers that we can guarantee loads before any other Windows driver. And that guarantee is basically done through a signature. So you get a special signature from Microsoft. And they basically have to vet you. I mean, if you read the actual guidelines, you have to be a security company, you have to be around for longer than one year. And one of the bullet points actually says you must have a good reputation. And I'm not sure how they'll, they'll, they'll judge that, but um, definitely looks like it's very strict the way they're going to hand out those, those signatures. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when we speak about these new, you know, anything they've done in Windows 8 to protect the kernel, I mean, you mentioned sort of secure boot and, um, you know, TPM based stuff. But really what that's doing is making sure that your that the kernel that is being loaded is the right kernel, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't stop people attacking it once it's in memory, right? Yeah, so part of those technologies like Elam and Secure Boot, what they're trying to do is establish kind of a, a root chain of trust that, that tells you um, well, either either that that tries to make sure that a kernel hasn't been tampered with, or that tells you, look, I know for a fact that a kernel's been tampered with, um, and you can now decide what you want to do about that. So in the TPM case, they actually have an interesting feature where um, called remote TPM attestation, where if you join to an Active Directory domain, um, the domain administrator can say, if that machine's been owned, you know, I don't want it to let it join the network anymore. Um, so it's very interesting. You can do these kind of things. But yes, once the once the kernel is loaded. Um, those particular technologies don't don't protect it, but there's been others that have been added um, that that do do that. Okay, and and what are they? Because we've just been through the sort of more application controly sort of you know features. What are the ones that are going to prevent people from being able to successfully exploit something in the kernel? Sure. So I, th- I think one of the, um, the the interesting ones is is a hardware feature that I think uh, Intel calls Intel OS Guard. Um, the, the technical name is, is MEP Supervisor Mode Execution uh, Prevention. And it's the, the idea there is a lot of attackers, once they exploit the kernel, 
um, they still need to they need to run some code. They need to actually get the uh, the instruction pointer to go somewhere. And in many attacks, um, that code is going to be somewhere in user mode. It's going to be somewhere in some heap or some stack or some executable code that's in user mode. They're going to get the kernel to call that code. And up until recently, uh, I think Ivy Bridge, there was no way for the, for the OS to say, well, why am I suddenly calling a piece of code in, in user mode while keeping my kernel privileges? So one of one of the things they've added is support for for that feature, um, and that's going to make it a bit harder for attackers to to own a system because they're going to have to have their attack code somewhere in in a kernel again, some sort of a kernel heap in a spray or a kernel uh, rob um, that's that's going to have to to do that. Other techniques have to do with basically um, making certain kinds of attacks harder. So um, the, the the kernel heap, which is called a pool, Tarjay Mant has done a whole lot of attacks against that. You know, his Twitter handle is even kernel pool. Um, and even in Windows 7, there were still um, lots of ways that you could corrupt the pool to actually um, get code to execute. Um, in Windows 8, based partly on his, his research, uh, they fixed pretty much all of the things that, that he had found. And he gave a talk at Syscan about some of uh, you know, how Windows 8 looks like. And you know, so far, it looks like it's going to be extremely difficult to find, uh, to actually exploit pool corruption in Windows 8. Um, so there's also some, you know, some some changes of this nature. So it really looks like Win8 is a pretty gigantic leap forward. I mean, in terms of like effort required to successfully write an exploit uh, for a Windows system, is it is it getting to the point where it's getting seriously difficult? I think it's I think it is getting to that point, um, honestly. And I think we're starting to see that also. If you look at you know bounties being given for exploits, you know there's um, those those are going up. There's a lot more interest in you know how how can you actually get um, an exploit? If you look at something like remote code execution in the kernel, you know, I think that's going to be extremely unlikely. Even in Windows Seven, um, there was a famous you know bug, uh, RDP bug, a few months ago. We uh, like to the terminal services. Yeah. Where you know if you send a specific kind of packet, and, and I and many others try to to exploit this on Windows Seven, um, and I think the best we got after we had a, we had ninety people on IRC channels, some of the best you know exploiters, and I think the most we got was the now service attack. And I think supposedly for XP, there's some private companies that found a remote code execution, but for Windows Seven, as far as anyone knows, you know no one actually found a way to exploit that that bug and get code execution out of it. And I think Windows Eight will make those kind of things even harder. Well, and particularly when it comes to persistence, when you've got, um, you know, a bit of hardware crypto uh, checking the integrity of the kernel as well, right? So even if you do exploit something, it looks like actually getting any sort of persistent access is going to be another whole other set of headaches, right? Yeah, persistent access is going to be a lot harder as well, partly because of, as you said, some of the hardware and and bias changes that are coming. Um, You know, this may or may not help, uh, but Windows 8 is also adding Windows Defender, you know, some built-in inbox feature. You know, whether it's, you know, AV is going to solve anything, I'm not sure. But the fact it's going to be there, I think, will make it easier for, you know, some people that normally don't even know, don't even think about security software to kind of have at least a more a harder system to, to get persistence on, definitely. Now, I mean, is it getting to the point where you would feel comfortable giving a Windows computer to a novice and allowing them to browse any filthy, grubby, you know, lyrics website or whatever without fear that they are going to uh, wind up Trojan. I mean, it is. it sounds like Windows 8 is actually going to be an operating system where you can do that. I think we're getting there. Um, I think, you know, if this was a Windows RT tablet, let's say, I think my answer would probably be, probably be yes, because at that point, every app is going to run through, through you know, the app container mechanism, they're going to be vetted through the store and so on and so forth. Um, Windows 8, though, so, you know, a lot of these technologies um, require you know, a lot of the sandboxing technologies, for example, the, the stuff that prevents you from clicking on a file on the internet that completely trashes your computer. Um, you know, that's you're still going to be able to do that in Windows 8 if you're running an admin account and you're double clicking on a file that someone sent you by email, and that file runs with your privileges. I mean, nothing's really going to stop that file from. Uh, from owning you. Now that's going to be very different. That's the very different from um, you know browsing a legitimate website that uses a, a Flash plugin exploit to you know drive by download something. Um, and that I think is a lot. You know, the, the case for those attacks in Windows 8 I think is a lot. Um, it's going to go down a lot. But a lot of novice users, unfortunately, the way they get attacked is not through advanced exploits like that, but really 
they get a flash banner ad that tells them download this and run it and they just go ahead and download that and run it and that takes more than just mitigations to, to prevent I think. So it looks like we are getting to the point where the biggest risk to users is actually their own behavior and not uh, you know automatic drive-by downloads. I mean that's 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 a pretty significant win, isn't it? Yes, definitely. I think once 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 you can say, look, a well, not educated, but a well-versed person who understands, you know, the risks of browsing the internet and doesn't just run random stuff they get, um, should now feel a lot safer if they're using Windows 8. I, I think. Now we've spoken a lot about what is going into Windows 8. What do you feel that they actually left out? One of the, you know, I also look at other operating systems, you know, Mac in particular, and I actually took a little bit of a look at how Mountain Lion. Um, you know, increase security on Mac. It was it was funny to see a lot of similar changes happening between both operating systems. But one area where I think that um, Windows is still lacking is, is information disclosure leaks. So those are basically um, whenever the kernel has some private piece of information, which could just be a pointer or some sort of information about the address space. Um, because Windows was originally designed to be so easy to code against and had so many rich APIs for developers, what ended up happening is that, you know, in the 90s, having those APIs made sense, but today in the security conscious world, some of those APIs don't really make a lot of sense. So there's an API, for example, that will give you the kernel address of any object on the system, and you don't have to be a privileged user to, to use this API. Well, I'd so imagine that would enable you to bypass a lot of the uh, a lot of the memory, you know, corruption mitigations, right? Right, exactly, because it gives, you know, it also tells you um, where all the drivers are loaded and their addresses. So it's great to have kernel ASLR, but locally, if I can call that API, <laughs> yeah. I can know where everything is. So they, It's random, but you can just ask the kernel where everything is and it yeah, tells you, right? Yeah. yeah, great. Remotely, of course, you can't do that, right? Remotely, my exploit's not going to ask you for those things, but it makes local exploitation a lot easier than it would have to be because things like ASLR, you know, lose some of their, their, their efficiency. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're chaining uh, some bugs together and you really actually want to get root to compromise something or system, you know, in yep. the case of Windows to get uh, persistent access, that's always going to come in handy, right? Yep. Yep. And, and uh, one more thing I would, I, would, I would think about is, um, you know, on Apple's side, on the phone, um, there's been a lot of care with, with not allowing jitting, uh, if you're aware of that, and, you know, not a, and the things that are jitted are only in the Safari process, and there's protections in the kernel to understand that those pages are being jitted and there's code signing around them. Um, and so the, the kernel really understands the idea of jitted executable pages and, and who should be allowed to use them through things like entitlements. Um, on Windows, you know, the memory manager isn't yet aware of those kinds of things. So on ARM, theoretically, um, even with those, you know, those sandboxes, uh, as far as I know, nothing stops other than the App Store you know, vetting process, but if you somehow worked around that, nothing would stop you from actually allocating executable memory um, and running code out of that memory that, that hasn't been um, signed because they have to support jitting and because they've allowed anyone to jit, you know, to get the extra performance. Obviously, Apple has to take a hit by not allowing, you know, any app out there to jit, but that's another area where maybe they could have integrated things a little bit closer. Well, that is all very interesting stuff. Alex Ionescu, thank you so much for joining us on the program, and I very much look forward to seeing your presentation at RuxCon Breakpoint. Yep, can't wait. Alex Ionescu there with a look at Windows 8 security, and you can catch Alex at the RuxCon Breakpoint conference on October 17 and 18 in Melbourne. More information at ruxconbreakpoint.com. Now, speaking of Breakpoint, uh, they're offering training, and one of the training sessions is with the creators of Multigo, uh, Ruloff Temming and Andrew McPherson. Now, these guys are flying out from South Africa and uh, will be training people on how to get the most out of Multigo, including its network reconnaissance and target selection features. It is extremely powerful software, and these guys obviously know it better than anyone else. And I am pleased to announce that through an exclusive promotion, anyone who mentions Risky Business when they register for that training session, we'll get the early bird rate. So that's $3,000 instead of $3,800. Uh, and that training takes place on the 15th and 16th of October. And I, as I say, I highly recommend it. Now, it is time for this week's sponsor interview with Mark Piper of Insomnia Security. Regular listeners know Mark. Uh, he works alongside Adam Boileau at Insomnia. And, uh, you know, these guys are pretty hardcore, basically. Uh, the business itself was founded by uh, research heavyweight Brett Moore but now has six full-time staff split between Auckland and Wellington. Now, they service both New Zealand and Australian enterprise, as well as some really well-recognised global brands, notably in the USA. 
Uh, but basically the point I'm trying to make here is that these guys are known as a particularly skilled shop. And one of the services they offer is red teaming. And that means the boys have developed their own APT style intrusion techniques that emulate what nation state attacks actually look like these days. And it's funny because when I was reading about Adobe's recent intrusion, I was struck by a phrase uh, that they used in their blog write-up. They said the attackers used typical APT style techniques to propagate their attack through the network. So APT, which was considered a few years ago to be an incredibly complicated and unpredictable form of attack, now has typical and understood elements. So I got Mark Piper on the line to ask him what those typical elements are, and here's what he had to say. There's definitely very clear MOs, especially even down to across different individual groups that are operating within the APT space. And I mean, what, what it comes down to is, is you can often have a look at what toolchain they're using and how they execute their toolchain, right? Part of the goal is to persist access, like so whether or not they're targeting centralized authentication. Part of it is to maintain persist access across the network. So they may utilize services like VPN, but it's also how do they approach their movement across the network. If you look at your average enterprise, right, these are extremely large, complex networks, right? And in the case of some recent examples, we know they're very large, complex networks. And part of what makes it APT, in my mind, is the way that they um, manage to successfully, I guess, understand the networks and work out which part of the treasure they want to go for on, on a given network. So a lot of the time, um, what you see is someone who has breached a network um, and maybe moving, say, They've gone and got domain administrator. They're moving around the network and they have completely ignored the financials, right? Mm. So they're not even looking at the money and what they're looking for is, you know, build capability, source code, um, even project documentation, right? Like, and, and it's a case of most of the time they walk around these networks unhindered because the detection isn't really picking them up. Yeah, now it's interesting, isn't it? Because it seems that APT has become synonymous with just, you know, skilled attacker after something that isn't money, uh, which is, you know, how that how that terminology sort of morphed. Now, as I mean, you guys do a lot of red team engagements, uh, which means that to a degree you have to emulate uh, the behavior of, you know, these APT actors. So in the case of a company like Adobe, if that was, you know, your goal, go and try to get something signed. I mean, you, you, you're pretty much mapping out your activities before you even get your first beachhead, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to enter into a large network, having a goal is critical, right? And most of the red teams we do will have a set goal at the beginning, right? So they might say, we want you to be able to read the CEO's email. We want you to be able to access the source code to our product. And the reason for that is because we we really need to sort of to, to push the scope in when it comes to red teaming and the sense of goals because you could be in some of these networks for three, four, five years and still have new targets to go after. Um, so I think apt operators work very much in the same fashion, right? They're, they're targeting so many networks and so much different levels of information that without a set goal, they'd just be wandering around aimlessly stealing like, you know, data for days and not being able to actually process it all. I guess effectively information overload, um, which can, can happen to us even every now and then. Now, as someone who, you know, spends part of his job actually trying to emulate these guys' behavior and um, simulate these APT-style attacks, you know, ha let's focus on the P part. I mean, how do you actually maintain persistent access and stay hidden? Because I would have thought, you know, that would be actually quite difficult to stay hidden over a long period of time. It can be. Well, I mean, basically, from our point of view, right, persistence for us is how we traverse in and out of the network from an external point of view. Right. Like once you're in a network, no one really does very good log aggregation or network monitoring and they often miss. Right. So you might come across an organization that does extremely good aggregation and monitoring of their active directory logs, but they don't do any monitoring of the centralized log and that's coming off their Unix host. Right. So in which case would persist via the Unix boxes. Um, in other cases, you can leverage the infrastructure that's that's been presented to you, right? So if they're running a virtualized environment, often you can just provision your new virtualized foothold, right, on their network. So it, it's, it's most of the time for our point of view, it's dodging the external because we've put a lot of effort into detection on our external, on, on the external networks, like as far as organizations go, but very little is done on the internal network, which is, you know, the where the main movement actually occurs after a compromise. Well, and it's interesting too, because a large part of this is hiding in plain sight, isn't it? Like creating what seem to be legitimate user accounts, even hijacking legitimate user accounts. And that way, you know, it's not like you're actually 
you know, using a lot of memory corruption bugs regularly and you might trip a Dr. Watson alert and that gets caught on the way out the gateway or, you know, something like that. I mean, it really is, once you're in, trying to be legit, right? Yeah, I mean, once you're in, like, you never really use memory corruption exploits, to be honest. Like, when you're, when you're moving laterally across the network, it's a case of reuse of services, right? Passwords, um, other sort of service accounts that exist. Sometimes it's just a case of figuring out what services on which, which systems then and having a look to see, like, you know, is there a web service on there? Is it from 2003 and never been audited? And you can all of a sudden get a foothold on that server, which may be closer to your target. I mean, the thing about APT is a lot of the tools that are not particularly sophisticated, right? So like, if you have a look in the case of Adobe, what they're saying was sign. PW dump isn't an extremely sophisticated tool, but it's effective, right? And so if you can have that tool, which isn't necessarily crazy complex, but you can execute it without getting detected, then you're going to have a good run. And so a lot of what goes on isn't actually, you know, technically advanced, but what it is, is um, conducted in a manner that that is goal-orientated, right? Mm. Or um, isn't, isn't ad hoc a lot of the time. Like a lot of the time you can see you know, game plans and action. And, and when you're executing a red team or capability driven test, like that's a large chunk of our work, right? Is trying to figure out how may they potentially respond to this and how may they sort of react on various services, right? If they, and, and that's, that's a large chunk of the work. So. Yeah. It seems interesting too, that, you know, the reason you would actually go for a, um, you know, valid signature on uh, a file like that is just really so that you can get through a, uh, AV without uh, any, problems whatsoever but um i guess i guess something else that i'm kind of curious about is you know you were talking before about how they might be doing advanced logging you know proper logging and, and aggregation on some of their windows boxes but not so much on the unix boxes so you might hide there you know to what degree is being able to see as an attacker being able to actually map out your targets countermeasures and detection i mean to what degree is that something that you really have to do to stay hidden um, it's critical, right? And I mean, it's, it's also useful for counterintelligence. Like we've had situations where, say, we've inadvertently tripped a, an AV service or something with, like, like unexpectedly didn't expect it to occur. And what we can see is by monitoring, say, the squid logs, we can see the administrators responding to that, right? By, by checking their Google searches and various other bits and pieces. So having the intelligence, like to be able to have a look through and see what's going on, um, especially from the network administrators and network engineers and system engineers is, is critical from, from mm. our point of view and the way that we operate. But I imagine um, you'd, you'd have to go pretty deep to be able to, uh, build a, a decent enough profile of what they're logging and what they're not and where their detection is. Well, I mean, a lot of the time, though, to be honest, you can just get a feel once you're in, right? Like, I mean, all all enterprises are the same, right? Like, at the end of the day, the technologies they use, the way they deploy them, and the architects that design them are all on the same page. It doesn't really matter what the organization is, right? I mean, so it's a case of, um, you know, just being up to the play on, on what sort of technologies are out there and how they're being deployed, you know, central authentication technologies, basic AV technologies, you know, and, and, you know, enterprise log management stuff. And I mean, if we're doing that at this level, right, then you know that other attackers like the APT style attackers are also doing that at that level as well. And in fact, investigations have shown that that sort of activity goes on. So, so I mean, uh, really we're talking about, I mean, we, we discussed um, the whole concept of lateral movement within a network with Adam, uh, you know, during Insomnia's last sponsor interview. But I mean, mm-hmm. really when it comes to it, I mean, what, what are some of the top tips that you can give some of the CSOs listening out there to avoid, you know, to actually pick up on some of this internal movement once an attacker has established a beachhead on a network because really what we're talking about here i mean this is all post compromise stuff this is after you've triggered your bug you've got your shell and then bang you know off you go on the land and and propagate your attack so so really i mean it's that that second stage there i mean how do you pick up on that well i mean first of all you need to be able to establish some sort of internal network monitoring capability right like i mean there's a lot of network traffic inside a network and a lot of it just goes unhindered, right? The amount of times we see IDS out at the border, but not internally, um, is, is quite, quite a lot. And the other, as, as I said previously, was log aggregation, right? Like quite often you see a lot of places not aggregate logging correctly, or they do have good log aggregation and we're getting logged as we move around the network. However, no one's looking or filtering at those logs, right? So, I mean, these are things that we've been saying for years about the external and we've, we've focused on hardening the external perimeter. But the problem is with this sort of activity, like the app style activity or red team activity is you generally end up on the internal network as, as part of your beachhead a lot of the time. The other thing we'd recommend is definitely having a look through, you know, sort of auditing of VPN access and enrollments because when you've got 
um, say, an attacker reusing your VPN infrastructure, and they're reusing the VPN infrastructure, say, with the cracked credentials for an account of the person that you know is currently sitting in the office and the VPN traffic's coming in from China or Japan or Russia or France or wherever wherever we've, we've set up our VPS, um, that goes unnoticed pretty much 100% of the time from our experience. And so, you know, just just having a look at event correlation is, is a goes a long way to being able to detect movement inside your network. First principle sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, this, this, like, nothing with the, we're talking about here that we use on a job and nothing that the, you know, the APT style attackers that are out there going hard doing a job, um, is particularly sophisticated in the sense of technology, right? But the, the difference is, is the fact that they're popping up on the internal network and they're popping up with a goal, right? Mm. And so, uh, well, what's, um, let me ask you, Mark, what's the best response you guys have ever had when you've been doing a red team? Have, has, has anyone ever cottoned on and effectively shut you out? Uh, it's happened, yeah, and uh, and to be honest, it's it's usually happened just by pure chance. Um, and the best response, to be honest, has never been that great. Um, evicting is is the other part of of what goes on and part of what we look at when it comes to to cleaning up red teams and cleaning up capability driven testing, right? And it's it's extremely hard for um, to be able to like truly evict someone out of your network if they've got a really good access and they've got domain level access. So, well, especially um, when you're talking about dozens, if not hundreds, of servers or workstations. I mean, to what extent do these APT guys actually? Yeah, how many systems on a network will they compromise? I mean, because they want to stay stealthy, but they also don't want to lose their persistence. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time, right? It's not necessarily about numbers on how many machines they get compromised. It's a case of how many different ways you leave to get back in lying around the network. Yeah. Right. So you don't want to use I mean, the a lot one of, MO because then they can detect it across everything, right? Yeah. And I mean, this has been documented over in cases, you know, against um, organizations over in the States and stuff where they've, they've, they've watched actors, you know, drop rootkit A and they've watched them drop rootkit B and rootkit B is dormant and they don't activate it until after the cleanup is finished of rootkit A, right? And they're in the networks for 10 years using that sort of techniques. Um, from our point of view, you know, we usually try to have at least a, an ace up our sleeve, usually two or three. But it's, it's a case of, when it, when it comes to eviction, right, the, the best you can do is be prepared in the sense of having exercised through it, right? And then that's where a lot of organizations struggle and fall down. And, you know, we saw this within the HB Gary emails, if you want to have a look at good public examples, where organizations that weren't used to being compromised were compromised top to bottom and panic sets in, right? So, I mean, mm. part of, part of what our testing does is, is help, you know, prepare people to understand what sort of work they're going to need to have to do. Well, and, that, and, and in that case, we're talking about a very small network as well. And, and even then, the panic yeah. really did set, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's never a nice feeling, right, realising that there's someone else on your network and they're stealing your trade secrets, mm. right? Like, especially <laughs> if it's source code, right? Like, And that, that's, that is, is never a pleasant situation to be in. And, I mean, we've even had red teams before where, you know, we've gone in and we've figured out that someone may have been there before us, right? And that, that sort of thing, you know, can happen. And, and it's a case of what what really helps is just being prepared, right? And, and testing helps get your team prepared. So. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's all very interesting stuff, Mark Piper. You're making me very glad that I'm not responsible for maintaining the security of an enterprise network. Thank you for joining <laughs> us, mate. And we'll chat to you again soon. Cheers, Pat. Mark Piper of Insomnia Security there with a look at APT techniques uh, and how the Insomnia guys roll during a red team exercise. And thanks again to Insomnia Security for its support of the Risky Business Podcast. And that's it for this week's show. This week's track is So Demanding by a Sydney-based house group called Bag Raiders. Grab it on iTunes. Until next week, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Maybe it's